we would meet these folks at the airport, you know, for interviews and stuff. And, and we would take them into TWA or American Airlines and would take these people. They'd show up with a suit stuffed in a duffel bag, all wrinkled. And many times we would take them to buy a suit. I mean, we literally, we would go buy them a suit and help them dress for the interviews and stuff. In a corporate world where all employees have great leaders with no egos that create fun cultures where people can do their best work. The employees and companies thrive while doing great things for the customers, themselves, and each other. Well, we know that rarely happens. I'm Jeff Palaccio. I have been a leader for over 40 years for every t-shirt-sized company from small 16 employees to extra-large over 1 million. Please join me while I interview outstanding leaders that will share stories of great leadership and not so great. It will help you become a better leader while poking fun about all the crazy shit that happens in corporate America. Hi, I'm Joe Deshawn and welcome to The Corporate Couch with Jeff Palaccio. Today, Jeff is interviewing Frank Benura. Frank started as an information technology recruiter in 1979 with a focus on the contract for hire methodology. Pursuing his passion for executive recruiting, he launched Alternative Search in 1984, focusing on information technology and C-level search engagements. In 2008, Frank founded Franklin Executive Solutions, LLC. He also created the Executive Agent Methodology, which manages the careers of executive operators in much the same fashion that professional agents represent the interests of actors and athletes. At the start of 2015, he became acquainted with many military veterans and their unique post-service employment transition. As a result, he defined a methodology by which veterans can create and secure the opportunities they deserve. You can learn more about Frank at the website for Franklin Executive Solutions at feskc.com. Let's listen as Jeff talks to Frank. Frank, welcome to the podcast. Well, Jeff, thank you for having me. Yeah, great to have you on. Uh, I think you and I met after an introduction from... Uh, Susan Spaulding, I believe, in uh, the 2014 time frame. So that was, uh, I have her to thank for meeting you and all the great people you introduced me to. So, Yeah, well, 2014, so going on 10 years, it feels like 10 minutes. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Actually, anymore, if I think something's been like a year or two, it turns out that it's usually a decade. You know, that's how fast right. time goes. I'm thinking two years ago, and I'm like, no, Frank, it happened 10 years ago, but Anyway, no, I, I, I appreciate Susan um, and her introduction to you as well. Yeah, and in terms of that kind of the time period, I think with COVID too, it made everything elongated. Just kind of, like you said, yeah. something that you think is two years ago was five years ago. or Well, it, it, ago. you're right. You know, I, I think about the 70s though, um, which at this point I've given away my, my age, uh, which is okay. I don't care. I'm 63. But anyway... But if that would have happened in the 70s, I, I've wondered many times what we would have done. I mean, the te technology of the day was what? Fax machines and voicemail. I mean, I think it would have been like some kind of a Stephen King movie. Thank goodness, you know, for Zoom and the technology we have. 
because that would have been a lot would have been a lot worse if it would have happened back in the day. Yeah, I, I never really thought about that. You're absolutely right. I don't even what would have been done. Um, yeah, I guess we would have figured something out. Yeah, conference. <laughs> yeah, be conference calls. I was in telecom in the early '80s into uh, into the mid '90s, and you know it would have been some kind of conference call bridges, I guess. But you would never have seen anybody. I think you know. I think people had mental health issues uh, during COVID. It would have probably even been worse. Because you're not, there's no professional social uh, socialization type thing. So, but the, but the conference calling that was going on, video conferencing, you know, in that period, I mean, they had to bring in a truckload of equipment. Even it was a huge undertaking to get everything connected and working. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, it wasn't uh, anything like like we have today. Well, of course, but but anyway. Um, yeah. But, you know, speaking of COVID, and you, you mentioned Zoom. So, you know, Zoom has become part of our life uh, for the last three plus years since the pandemic began in uh, March of uh, 2020. Um, a question I like to ask every guest is, what, you know, what's the craziest uh, attire you've ever seen somebody wear on a professional Zoom call or, or lack of attire? Oh, you. the story I have for you is you probably... This is going to be uh, entertaining. So I'm interviewing a CFO candidate for a search client, executive search client of mine, out of state or Zooming. He has a coat and tie on and, you know, dressed very professionally. And when this was probably, well, I mean, you know, coat and tie isn't something you see much of any, any you know, any longer. Um and so this was, you know, probably six months into the whole into that whole COVID thing. Anyway, the guy stands up to go shut his blinds, and he doesn't have any pants on. <laughs> Can't make it up, right? No, a guy standing there in his underwear. <laughs> anyway, I didn't say anything. I didn't want to embarrass the guy, but you can imagine we we didn't move forward at that point. Um, <laughs> But I'm thinking, yeah, so that's the craziest story I have. I love it. I love it. You know, Isaiah, I don't know if you've heard one of anything close to that before. But No, I think you right now you have the prize. Uh, well, there was, one, there was one guest that some guy had just been done working out, and he literally had a, just a towel over him on, on the top <laughs> and no shirt. Wow. That's... I mean, those two may be tied. I mean. Wow. Uh, yeah. yeah, but to – yeah, but you know, guy stands up and he's in yeah. his underwear, and I'm staring at his crotch. That was pretty. Yeah, that would be uh, boxers yeah. or briefs. What was the? Uh... Uh, uh, boxers. <laughs> Not that I was paying that much attention. Well, you, you know, it was right in your boxers. You know, right yeah. in your vision. Line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't. You know, I mean, I, I kind of, I don't know. I've kind of felt sorry for the guy, I suppose, but I, yeah. I didn't say anything, but. Yeah, so that was pretty uh, entertaining. Yeah, yeah, um, I I find it uh, during the interviews that I I I do the whole dress up thing, everything. You know, I think it just it makes you feel more professional, even though it's Zoom. It I'm not going to see what's you know. No, it, <laughs> well, there, you're yeah, no. not going to see what's below. <laughs> well, it, yeah, it no, it does. I mean, it helps. You know, the back in the day, right? Dress for success. That's right. I mean, it it does set the tone. 
I guess mentally and stuff, you know, you're you're dressed for a professional engagement or encounter of some kind. So it, it can help. Yeah. I love the reference. We're the same age. So uh, I love the reference to dress for success. So there was obviously when we grew up, no interview, I mean, no internet, you had a, you had to go to the library to do research yeah. on, you know, how to, so in college, I get this book cause I, you know, I'm doing research on what's the best books to read. Cause I have no idea how to dress for an interview and uh, dress for success. I think it was John Malone that the author may be wrong with the title. And that's how I learned to dress for my interviews. Cause my, my dad, uh, who had, uh, unfortunately had passed before I graduated from college. Um, he was a welder union, you know, steam fitter. Um, so we had, you know, and we were, my brother and I were the first generation to go to college. So yeah, that's how you learn to, uh, what to do and, you know, got interview books too at the library and, uh, all that good stuff. So, um, yeah. Yeah. That was a, that was the go-to book, yeah. uh, again, back in the day for, for, uh, dressing, you know, uh, appropriately for, well, interviewing or any professional encounter. Yep. Yes. Um, so uh, you grew up in the Kansas City area, am I correct there? Mm -hmm. Correct. Yeah. Grew up so, in Kansas City. so growing up, what was your kind of uh, your your kid and your dreaming about your what are you going to do when you grow up? What was your kind of dream, Frank? Uh, baseball. Baseball. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What, yeah. Uh, you play it your whole uh, uh, early adulthood and. Use. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'd had lots of plans for that until my um, high school cheerleader girlfriend got pregnant and then we got married. <laughs> <laughs> so there's some personal another first, for another first on the show. There you go. There, there's some personal information for you. But, <laughs> you know, in those days, you know, if something like that happened, you know, you everything stopped and you just got married. Right. Wow. That's so great. That's what we uh that's what we did. Yeah. So, um, and then my, uh, father was in the restaurant business, my mom and dad, and I went to work for my father washing dishes in 1978, 79. Right. Um, you know, entering into the generational family restaurant business. I, my family up until 2000, one or two my family had, had a restaurant in kansas city since like 1914 something like that wow many of them downtown that catered to the uh um lunch you know the people going to lunch you know like italian gardens you've probably heard of italian gardens yeah and sure so my dad had um catering to uh he didn't do much in terms of dinner it was all you know just for lunch and then after everybody you know you keep talking about back in the day, right? But after everybody ate lunch around two thirty, three o'clock, they'd all start drinking, right. <laughs> and then drink until they until they decided to go home, right? Right. Um, so I'm in my dad's, you know, kitchen washing dishes, and a gentleman, um, a friend of his by the name of Maurice Gosney, who was one of the two founders of a company in town called Information Industries Incorporated, Triple I. Oh, sure. And yeah, they contract staffing. Uh -huh. Actually, okay. Reese and uh, Gosney and Bob Spockman, from what I can remember, were the two, They, I believe they're considered to be the grandfathers of the contract for hire concept. 
And so uh, Maurice came back in the kitchen one afternoon after lunch was over at the restaurant and said, hey, Frank, you want to be a recruiter? And I said, well, didn't really know what he was talking about, because when he when he <laughs> said when he said recruiter, I think of college recruiters for sports. I think of recruiters for the military. And um, he said, well, I'll explain to you what it is. He, he said, you know, if you come to work for me, I'll pay you more than your dad does. And I said, well, that won't be very hard. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, they were on the third floor of the 10 Main Center building okay. downtown. My dad's restaurant was on the second floor. This is 1979, 78, 79. He said, well, just put on a suit and Monday show up and we'll get you going. So I went to uh, Rothschild's, which was downtown at the time, bought me a polyester suit, looked like I was preparing to audition for Goodfellas. It was not a leisure suit, though, just to be clear. No, no, it wasn't a leisure suit. Okay, just no, to make no. sure. No, no, I, I stand too a, close to flames with a leisure suit on. Yeah, no, I, I had a full Goodfellas mafiosa oh, nice. polyester suit, nice and shiny. Went up to Florsham's and bought some shoes to match right so showed up uh that following monday and they put me in a room with three other guys and said see that stack of manila folders each one of them represents a pars programmer that pars was the passenger airline reservation system for the airlines and twa was a big client of theirs and so i was tasked with recruiting pars programmers all over the country to come into kansas city and work for TWA and then we they ended up closing American Airlines as a as a client as well and we'd hire these PARS programmers they'd go into TWA and American and the um on what was called you know it was at the time contract for hire and they would be an employee of ours for a year and then they would convert to uh TWA's uh or American Airlines payroll wow. that's what I did so did that for a while and then at 24 I became self-employed and started recruiting. Uh, at that time, I was uh, recruiting um, sales, sales support people for uh, technology companies uh, like Oracle, Cisco. At the time, you had Burles and, you know, DEC and some of the others. And then uh, started doing more executive uh, headhunting type searching for, se- you know, senior level executives for companies and just went on from there. Yeah. Tell the uh, tell me and the and the and the listeners. So you're 1979. You're on the basically the early days of really what I'll call the IT slash technology boom period. This is like really the, the beginning in my mind because really mm-hmm. I think it really took off in uh, in the in the 80s in, into the 90s in terms of really the the tech stage. You know the you know, that's, uh, I forget what exactly when Microsoft started, but it had to be in that late 70s, early 80s time period. And so what, I mean, what was it like? I mean, did you even, you were so young, do you even realize, you know, what you're, you know, what you're being involved in and being a kind of a pioneer, not only in the recruiting industry and in the tech for hire, but just, you know, uh, it, just in technology in general? No, I didn't have a clue. I was 19. Yeah, I thought I knew everything, but I didn't really know much of anything. Uh, no, I had no idea. And what we were recruiting were 
computer programmers. I mean, develop. I mean, they were techie, techie, techie folks, right? Writing lines of code and right. you know, uh, software developers, applications, pro, you know, developers. And my, what well, wasn't it the first Apple computer came out in eighty two ish? Yeah, eighty two, eighty three. Yeah, yeah. And then in the mid eighties, Oracle became a pretty good good sized client of mine. And uh, when I went out on my own at 24, I think Oracle was just, Larry Ellison and Oracle were just starting to get their legs underneath them and just take off. Um, But uh, yeah, so that's what I, um, but I, I enjoyed that quite a bit. Never considered myself to be a technology person, but when I left Triple I, it was all, those were all programmers. When I went on my own, and what I did there for a few years before I went on my own was um, searching for sales and sales support people. Dealing with salespeople was much more, I enjoyed that much more than, you know, dealing with the, you know, software developers or the people writing the code. Because back in, in those days, I mean, the computer that wore tennis shoes kind of a thing, I mean, they really were, they weren't, you know, they were pretty um, shy and introverted folks. And, and again, I'm not being critical. I'm just saying that's just the way it was at the time. There wasn't like, uh, it was data processing. It wasn't information technology or anything like that. It wasn't, um, they were coders, you know, period. It was just a very different world. We, We would meet these folks at the airport and, you know, for interviews and stuff, and, and we would take them into TWA or American Airlines, and we'd have to take them to, well, I didn't, but the salespeople or what they called systems engineer managers would take these people. They'd show up with a suit stuffed in a duffel bag, all wrinkled. And <laughs> there are time, many times we would take them to buy a suit. I mean, we literally, we would go buy them a suit and help them dress for the interviews and stuff. I mean, they were just... You know, they weren't very uh, engaging. Then when I got into the whole sales thing, that's where I had, I enjoyed that much more because I was dealing with people that were, well, you know, they were more and, you know, more engaging. And uh, that was more my, uh, my speed. And I went from there into the executive level C-suite of headhunting. And um, it's been that way ever since, along with, you know, the transition services I have. And I was a professional connector for 10 years. And I um, and uh, the um, the executive agent clients that I have now, and all that evolved, you know, it's evolved over, you know, 42 years. Right. But, you know, but it started in that boiler room kind of a thing with three other guys dialing for dollars, so to speak. Yeah. So, yeah, we're going to get to, you know, what you do today and ha- what you have been doing. But I'd love to, uh, one, uh, first question is the three other people, do you still keep in contact with or do you know what they're doing now? Yeah, great question. Have no idea. You know, they were all, these guys had all graduated from college. I, I, uh, the youngest guy, I was 19. The youngest guy was probably 30. These were all edu- educated guys. I'll tell you, uh, Triple I was a crazy place, and the turnover was extraordinary because they worked you to death. But I worked around some. Uh, I, there were a lot of people that really helped me in the tour pretty quickly because I was around so many people so much older than I was at the time. I learned a lot, 
I, I learned a lot. I mean, it's kind of like I, I got my college and my MBA through uh, working around all those guys at a very young age that had were cut cake, had come from um, nice schools, very well educated, sharp, smart people. Yeah, that's interesting. So, um, yeah, because you're, you know, it's you're, you're getting your college slash MBA because you're working. And did, did you have a mentor at Triple I that that helped you? Yeah. Uh -huh. Oh, absolutely. A guy by the name of Dick Mueller. Um, he he was from. Uh, he'd actually come to Triple I through IBM, played uh, basketball at Maryland. You know, just uh, everybody wanted to be Dick. He's one of those guys, right? Yeah. MBA. Yeah, crazy. He was my one of my. He was my primary mentor through that, and that uh, through most of my life. Wow. Tremendous guy. Left there, started a company called Multiple uh, uh, Technologies Corporation, and that ended up being acquired for like sixty-five billion dollars. I mean, Dick did uh, Dick did quite well. Um, but you know, uh, but the, but the only reason I got hired there was because Maurice and my dad knew each other. Sure. It of, yeah. It was one of those things. Right. And, and, and Maurice knew that I was a very hard worker and I, you know, I was usually the first one in and the last one to leave that kind of thing. I mean, there were some weekends I actually spent the night there. Wow. Working, recruiting parse programmers for special projects, they called it. And there were times, I mean, there were a couple of times we actually stayed over. I mean, it was, it was a crazy place. Wow. <laughs> So it's not like today where, you know, you can uh, use LinkedIn or Sales Navigator or, you know, you know, if you really have a lot of money uh, corporately, Zoom Info. Um, what I mean, how did you get leads? I mean, obviously it had to be phone, but what, what was that? What was that process like? Well, we would call into there were like, I think, like 42 PARS installations across the world maybe the country, but I think across the world. Uh, and, that, and actually, Bank of America ended up using, uh, they took that PARS ACP, that operating system, and now they, they call it, they call it, um, they, they uh, renamed it Transaction Processing Facility. So, because um, it was a resident for the reservations for the airlines, right? And that's a pretty important part of the, that's the heartbeat of the airlines, right? I mean, that reservation system goes down, you got a problem. And so the, the uh, like Bank of America used the same technology for check processing because of the high transaction processing speed and all of that. I'm not a technology person, so, but anyway, so we would call into places and through various methods would identify who the PARS programmers are and and then, you know, since we worked so heavily in that area, you know, a lot of people came to us through referrals. So then you go out on your own. You, so now you're looking at sales recruitment and sales support recruitment. How did you get, you know, I could see you knew where the 42 PARS uh, installations were, so you can kind of target. But now the market's broader. How are you finding the leads for your sales and sales support recruiting? Yeah, through relationships. So, yeah. yeah. And, you know, for me, I, you know, I've always defined, I mean, relationships much differently than networking, which anyone that's ever talked to me knows that I consider that to be nothing more than card swapping. So I've uh, always been, you know, focused um, on, you know, creating and nurturing real relationships. And, you know, most of all of our opportunities come through relationships. Right. Um, and so I just spent tons of time 
identifying, creating, nurturing relationships, creating value for everyone that I could, being a resource for everyone I could be. And that really is what has fed my pipeline for decades. So what what got you into that mindset? Was it a was it a person? Was it a book? What like how did you develop that mindset? Well, my epiphany was when I was 24 and I went on my own and married, had, you know, my wife didn't work and we had two small kids. I mean, at that time, my daughters were, what, five and six, and I was needing some deck repair. And so hired a guy through a friend of mine to repair my the deck on the back of my house. And <clears throat> he, um, it was a hot August day in 84. And I just took some took a glass of tea out to the guy. I mean, give him something to drink. And we just started talking. And what's crazy is, is that, you know, um, I've always talked about how opportunities very often come from the least likely sources. And so, um, you know, this had been somebody too, that I would, I mean, the whole don't judge a book by its cover, right? It's got long hair, missing multiple teeth, tattoos everywhere. Didn't look like a professional, professional kind of a, person um and um <clears throat> so we just started talking and he asked me so what do you do and i told him and one thing led to another and he said you know you ought to meet one of my neighbors who is uh responsible for growing the office here in kansas city for um oracle and he asked me have you ever heard of oracle and i said well you know i've read about him in computer world i don't even know if that newspaper magazine or whatever even still exists but at the time computer world was the big data processing yeah. paper whatever the day and i said i've read about him i don't know a whole lot about him <clears throat> anyway long story short he made the introduction and um it changed my life i tripled my income that year and i i, I mean i you can imagine the deck business i sent sent that guy um right. <laughs> yeah and and he has since passed you know but I remember walking into my uh, kitchen and stopping and kind of thinking about what had just happened. And that was my epiphany. I, I, it was like, you know, again, you don't want to judge a book by its cover. The uh, just the interaction that we had, he was looking to do something for me. I did plenty for him as well. And uh, lots of trust there. And that really launched me into the whole thing of understanding or at least for me anyway, identifying the difference between card swapping, networking, and a genuine uh, relationship and the power of genuine relationships and the mind shift. I mean, I just went through a mind shift there about, and I, and, you know, I haven't made a traditional sales call in decades. I haven't needed to because I have, you know, these relationships of mine that have become even much more than a relationship, a banner waiver, uh, I have an army of banner waivers out there that keep my pipeline rich with uh, opportunities professionally. But really, those have created personal opportunities for me as as well. And um, for me, it's always been about the relationship and not not, uh, you know, um, you can't fake sincerity for very long. I mean, there are some people out there that pretend to get relationships and there are others that demonstrate that they get relationships and a genuine relationship is not about quid pro quo or keeping score or free diamond necklace with every test drive. Right. So, yeah, I mean, uh, that was my epiphany. Yeah. I, I think it, yeah, that 
the difference for me, and I, I totally agree in terms of your networking and relationships. I mean, relationships and uh, are about you know how what can I do to help you, and it, it and it's built on trust. And you just can't you know as Andre Davis, who you and I both know, Andre has a great analogy. You know, you're dating your significant other. It's the first date. You don't have a wedding ring in your pocket and say you know when the you know, the lunch or the dinner or the coffee is over. Hey, this went really well. Let's get married. Right. It's, you know, it's, it's a process over time. And it's, a, you know, it's like the law of the farm as Stephen Covey used that analogy. You can't, you know, there's a process to harvest crop or grow crops and harvest them. You, you can't rush the process. Right. No, but you know, with some people though, you get there much faster than you do with a hundred percent. Yeah. The, the, the key though, where I think most, have a tendency to miss the boat is when it comes to nurturing the relationship, because if you don't nurture your relationships, I think you just end up with a network of strangers. Right. Right. So, you know, you can go to lunch, you can, you can date, you can, whatever you want to call it, you know, speed dating. Um, but you need to be um, engaged and nurture the relationship uh, by creating value and being a resource for people um, most often when there's no immediate, if you have, if, when, when there's not an obvious immediate return for you, right. To serve others, we all hear about servant leadership, but to serve others, knowing that, you know, I mean, personally, I don't worry about business and money and stuff. I know if I do enough of the right things, that's just a byproduct of, you know, doing the right stuff. And the, the big thing for me is just taking care of my relationships and, uh, having a genuine interest in the success of other people and helping other people. And it might be something personal. Look, I, I learned a long time ago, you do two things for people. They love you forever, making money, help one of their kids. Right. And so most of my day is spent at least to try to help as many individuals that I can, because that's just who I am. That's how I'm built, but it's also smart business. I mean, what's beautiful about the whole relationship process is that you get to do for people, plus it's smart business. I mean, it's a great combination. Uh, so you get introduced to a lot of people uh, be, because of all the people you do have relationships with. Uh, two questions in that. Do you do you automatically meet with that person because of the relationships you already have with the person that did the introduction? And then two, do you at some point get a sense in during that first meeting with someone that you're probably never going to meet with them again, or do you get that sense, or you you wait and see how it develops? Well, I you know I meet everybody. Now, when I say meet everybody today, it might be a Zoom call. Sure, but I engage with everyone. My only criteria is that they be quality people. Mm -hmm. I don't care about their station of life or you know title money any of that, as long as they're quality people, I'll, I'll meet with them. I have parents having me meet with their high school age kids. I meet with CEOs and everything in between. And I, I don't, as long as they're quality people, because I'm, I'm of the opinion, anytime two quality people get together, therein lies the value. And, uh, and like I said earlier, opportunity, like the guy that built my deck, I could have easily, easily ignored him. You know, he doesn't have a coat on or a tie. He doesn't matter. Thank goodness I didn't. And didn't wasn't of that opinion or think that way because I would have lost out on one of the greatest opportunities of my lifetime, quite frankly. I mean, the epiphany I went through through that experience plus tripled my income that year. Believe me, 
you know, a 24 year old guy with a wife that doesn't work and two kids needs that. Right. right. Yeah. So, um, and I, you know, I had no idea going into that, what, what it was going to lead to. And I will tell you that you never know where relationships or introductions are going to lead. And so, yeah, now, you know, you're not going to have, you can't have a, a terrific relationship with everyone. I mean, you can't, I mean, you know, but um, I, I think research shows that you can have, you know, a pretty in-depth relationship with about 52 people or something like that. I believe I was told, I don't right. even, I don't know for myself. And, and what's funny is, is for years I've had what I call my top 52. I didn't even know 52 even mattered, but apparently it does. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and, um, uh, but I have, you know, I, there are some people I talk to once a week. Some people I talk to once a year, people have relationships like, you know, like with you, Jeff or other people, you and I could not talk for 10 years. And when we did talk eventually, it'd be like, we just talked yesterday. Right. right? Yep. So, um, but uh, as long as a person's a quality person, uh, I'll help them in any way that I can, you know? So yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. matter none of that other stuff matters to me. Obviously I've worked with you and you're phenomenal, but, uh, and I know what you do, but maybe you could, I think you kind of break your, uh, how you provide value to people in three different ways. Maybe you can go through each of those and, uh, tell the audience. Well, I don't want to bore your listeners with an infomercial, but no. you know, I'm, a, I'm, 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 a, I'm a head hunter. Right. Uh, I was a professional connector for about 10 years. I don't do any more of that. I, I decided not to charge for that anymore. I just use that to nurture my relationships. I have a transition service that's very unorthodox. Uh, what I've ever, anything that I've ever done as a recruiter, headhunter, or uh, the transition platform I offer people has nothing to do with job boards, HR departments, and uh, resumes. You've heard me say, Jeff, I think Webster should change the definition of resume to desperate job seeker. So, <laughs> uh, and then I've been an executive agent, you know, for, a number of years. I've got five executive agent clients and look at that like an agent for an athlete or an actor. I literally managed the careers of these individuals. And so um, how'd you get that idea? Because I think that's unique. When you told me that you did that uh, years ago, I was like, wow, I mean, that's really, I think, a great idea. But how did you come about it? Well, I mean, it's pretty simple. I mean, it's 2008 and I'm always looking, you know, for ways to so everything that I do, the transitioning, the agent, the professional connecting, the headhunting is all under that like career type management umbrella. And I've just looked for different ways to monetize things. So the professional connecting, anyone that goes to my LinkedIn profile will see the connector. I always tell everyone, make sure they understand I didn't give myself that designation. In the late 20s at 28 years old, people started calling me the connector. So I monetized it. So business owners would hire me to come in and talk with them about the difference between networking and relationship development, meet with their employees and et cetera, that kind of thing. So, you know, um, but I want people to know I didn't give myself that designation because that can come off to be kind of cheesy. So was um, it one specific I, person that named you that or just a lot everybody of just, it just kind of took hold. Yeah. People just started calling me that. Yeah. Um, and, um, but then I decided, you know, I'm just going to use the whole relationship thing and introductions to nurture my relationships, right? To create value for them. Um, 
And so the executive agent thing, I was, you know, I love golf. And this is 2008, and I'm uh, watching uh, Phil Mickelson, his agent is being interviewed. And um, I was just thinking, you know, why can't executives have agents? And so that following Monday, I thought of executive agents, started calling myself that, and got my first client out of Scottsdale. He's still a client. Uh, and um, I've got one in Kansas City, four outside of Kansas City. And that's how I got started. Yeah. And and it's in it. Um, the fact that, you know, my recruiting, my headhunting, my professional connecting, um, you know, I it all kind of like, uh, you know, was part of that executive agent model or methodology or whatever you want to call it. That's what enabled me to to do it. You know, I, a lot of the agents I don't know so much about today, but in the past, a lot of the agents for athletes and actors were really lawyers, attorneys. Right. Yeah, I'm certainly not an attorney, nor do I want to be. Um, but um, yeah, I, I think uh, there are plenty now that aren't. I'm not really for sure. But anyway, that's how that got started. And I've uh, loved it. It's it's a lot of fun. Yeah, maybe we should do a, a movie about, you know, kind of like the Jerry Maguire of business agents. Uh, yeah, agents. you can. Yeah, we call it the connector. <laughs> yeah, well, it's not near that sexy. So yeah, and and Tom Cruise is a lot better looking than I am, so I don't, I don't think that would go over very that's, well. That's debatable. You're, yeah. you're a lot taller than Tom, though. <laughs> Not by much. I'm 63. I shrink a half inch every year. <laughs> no, that's how that whole agent thing got started. Just I'm just watching him, uh, his Nickel Mickelson's inter, uh, agent get interviewed, and it just kind of hit me, and there I went. Hired an attorney to put together a, a client services agreement and letter of engagement and spent a lot of money putting those uh those pieces in the into place and yeah it, it's been it's been fun so we'll talk about your book uh the economy of one I've read it and I think I think it's the like the Bible for job seekers uh, I mean obviously you've done it for such a long time but what gave you the idea to actually write the book and and how do you use it in your services well, yeah, so the workbook, and just to be clear for everyone, the, it's not a book book, it's a workbook that it has 10 modules in it, and it's what I use to take people through my uh, transition platform. But having said that, for years, I wanted to create something like the Economy of One workbook um, because I love my transition platform it's kind of crazy too. I don't know if, I mean, I guess it's kind of happens as you get older, all my money that I revenue that I generate is through headhunting. Everybody knows those fees can be pretty nice. And my executive agent clients, the least amount of revenue is comes from my, my transition service. And it's the thing I love the most really actually the only reason I charge anything at all is so that people will take it you know, seriously. And usually if I have somebody's money, I have their attention and it's a lot of work. I mean, I don't have pixie dust. Right. And so, uh, so the workbook, it's 10 modules. And what happened was about six years ago, I was introduced to Fort Leavenworth and uh, through a very good friend of mine, uh, Jim Tennant, he's a retired special forces Colonel. I, I still call him Colonel. <laughs> He introduced me to Fort Leavenworth um, and they were in interested, you know, they were having a lot, they had, had a number of um, 
uh, senior officers that were transitioning into the private sector. And very long story short, I was given the opportunity to go in there and work with those heroes, as I would call them, 30 or 40 of them. I mean, these were these are the most impressive people I've ever been around. West Point grads jumping out of airplanes, chasing terrorists. I mean, special forces. I mean, and Leavenworth is like a war college. It's not like you don't find a bunch of tanks there. I mean, and uh, their pedigrees are extraordinary. I'm glad I didn't have a, you know, know everything that I know about them now. Before I showed up, I went that quite intimidated by their presence, uh, Rambos with brains. I mean, these guys were just amazing and, and ladies. So a good friend of mine, Elizabeth Allen, I think you might know Elizabeth, Jeff. I was, uh, I wanted to do something like this, but I'm not a book writing person. I'm not, that's just not me. I'm not somebody to put together flow charts and workshops and the documentation associated with all of it. So Elizabeth Allen basically sucked everything out of my brain and stuck in this workbook. And Fort Leavenworth turned out to be like a, a lab for me uh, to try this out. And I, I didn't charge them anything, um, or I should say we didn't charge them anything um, because of, well, two reasons. It's, you know, am I, you know, they're heroes. I, I want to help them any way that I can. And also too, they were kind of like a, you know, and I'll do respect, like a guinea pig kind of a thing, like a, a laboratory for me to, you know, um, put all this stuff out there. And so that's how the workbook was born and created. And yeah, that's how that's how it happened. Yeah. And, and just to be clear, I mean, having read the workbook, I mean, it is, it definitely is a workbook, but it is a book. I mean, there's great insight and yes, you have to do exercises and things like that. But it, 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 you know, I think people's mind when you say workbook, it could be like a ten-page, twenty-page, you know, uh, e-doc. But it's, it, you know, it's a full-blown book with a lot of exercises in it. Let's put it that way. Yeah, you know, thank you for. Well, it's actually 157 pages in the workbook, and there, are, there are exercises and there. Uh, it, it's a uh, yeah. There's a lot of information there, Jeff. You're right. Thank you for saying that. I know you said something earlier, and I've heard you say it before in conversations you and I have had, but, you know, a resume, you know, just screams desperate job seeker. What do you think about the trend in LinkedIn today? So people are much more transparent that they're in a job search. Like you see a lot of posts with people that say, yeah, I just got, uh, you know, reduction in force. I lost my job today. You know, and they write this, I'm not going to say dissertation, but it's a, you know, fairly, they're usually fairly lengthy posts. It's like, hey, I would appreciate any introductions and things like that, as well as the uh, label on their LinkedIn profiles as, you know, uh, hashtag open to, to work. But what are, what are your thoughts? Because obviously that didn't happen in the, you know, there was no LinkedIn in the 80s, 90s, uh, early 90s. So, yeah. When I'm introduced to folks and I see that on their LinkedIn profile, the first thing that comes out of my mouth is to tell them that they really need to get that off of their profile. I mean, that's like standing out on the street corner saying, holding up a sign saying, I will work for food. The path you take to get a job is a very different path from identifying and creating opportunity. And if you label yourself as a job seeker, that's how you're going to be treated. I mean, people have a tendency actually just to keep you at bay because they don't have anything for you. 
most likely they're they're not going to they're not going to stick a job seeker on their friends and their relationships and the odds are the next engagement that a person has professional engagement is going to come through somebody they know now or haven't met yet but if they if they're if they're a job seeker worship behave like a desperate job seeker people are just going to run the other direction and they're going to you know probably end up engaging the the traditional methods of mass distributing resumes and HR departments and job boards and all that creates is lots of frustration and aggravation. And in the end, you know, self-doubt. Uh, and I can go on and on and on about that topic. But if you need a job, you know, to keep your lights on and put food on the table, great, well, go get a job. But while you're working that job, there are many other different things that you can do that won't define you or cause you to behave like a job seeker that will enable you and help you create, identify, and secure that opportunity that you and your family deserve. So just like networking and relationship development are two different paths and mindset mindsets, so is pursuing a, a job or an opportunity. It's, it's a mind shift. It, those are two different paths. And, but, you know, like I said, you need a job, get a job, you know, but that doesn't mean that you can't put into practice practices and behaviors that will lead to that, to that opportunity. So I, that, that you deserve, but yeah, I, um, I think I discourage folks from doing any of that. Yeah. I think it was uh, both you and uh, a recent uh, guest, Teresa Carey put in my mind um, that it just it causes a lot of anxiety and uh, with people you meet if you're a, you know you're just saying help me get a job because 99.999 percent of the people you meet with or know don't have a job for you don't know of a job for you but they know people they know companies they have insight and so if you you know change the you know why you want to talk to them you just want everybody has their insight and you don't come off as a desperate job seeker. Uh, even if you have to pay the bills, right, and you want to get a job as quick as possible, it just changes the dynamic of the conversation. So, yeah, well, that's why I, you know, if there's one thing I could burn into the brains of everybody, one thing it would be that we're never not in a state of transition. Right. And preparing for that next transition um, is best accomplished when you don't need to do it. So just do the things you need to do on a daily basis, primarily with relationships and other things without getting into a, a ton of detail here, Jeff. Uh, do those things that, you know, I mean, um, uh, that will, you know, pretty much guarantee that you never have an empty pipeline of of opportunities to to consider moving forward. But to wait to the wall, wait for the walls to cave in is is really a, a huge mistake that many that many make. And I'll tell you the traditional methods, the, the real damage that's done is it is it causes people to question themselves, you know, am I not talented? Why doesn't anybody want to hire me? What's wrong with me? And and there's not wrong any I've never met anybody where there's something like glaringly wrong with them. It's just that they're they're going down those that that empty rabbit hole of mass distributing resumes and broadcasting and looking for a job. And that's what they're going to get as a job. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you that companies like to hire people that aren't desperate. I mean, um, it's just like when you're, when you're younger days, you know, when you were dating, I mean, 
who wants to be with somebody that's desperate, right? Desperation is not a very attractive thing, right? Yeah. And people so, reek of it. What's that? They reek of it. You could yeah, sense yeah. it when you it, meet with yeah, them. Yeah, exactly. You, you, you turn people off. So, you know, it, but it, it really has a massive impact on, on how people behave and it's very discouraging and you start to doubt yourself and, and, and really, uh, it's, it's, it's the, it's the resume mass distributing of resumes and HR departments and job boards and stuff that's creating all of that because, um, uh, you know, there's just about every time I can think of, I mean, there's somebody out there that needs that person's particular talents or can take it, you know, can use their core competencies. And the only reason they don't have an offer or offers in their pipeline is because the people that need them just don't know that they exist because they're pursuing those desperate job seeker or job seeker paths of resumes, job boards, and HR departments, right? I mean, relationships is what can drive all of that. And that's really where they need to be spending their time. I mean, there's there's lots of detail in there yes. that we're not going to get into. I'm I'm kind of at 40,000 feet here. But the but the worst thing that happens is people start to to doubt themselves and it's not them. It's the path that they've chosen to identify that next job that's creating all of that. It's it's not it's not them. So the self-doubt is really debilitating and and yeah. and sad. In all your years of experience, what's the, the best question you tell your clients uh, to ask during an interview process? Yeah, I think the best question that you can ask in an interview of the person you're interviewing with is what you can do in the role that you're discussing that will create the greatest amount of, amount of value and impact for them in the role they're in. Right. Because the people that you meet with, I mean, they all have their own individual. I mean, if you meet three people in one company, all three of them are going to have three different agendas. So you might understand what you can do to create value and impact for the enterprise, but just as importantly, if not more important, is to know how you can create value for the, say, three different people that you're meeting sends a tremendous message that you're going to help them be successful or you want to be help them be successful uh, in the roles that they're in. And also, too, I mean, how can you position yourself properly with someone if you don't know what's most important and meaningful to them? Yeah, that's great insight. Frank, you've been a pleasure. Yeah, you, you've helped me throughout my career, um, and I consider you a friend. Um, so thank you for being on the podcast today. Oh, I've, I've enjoyed it very much, Jeff. I, I, uh, you haven't needed me to have the career success that you've had, but uh, you know, thank you for that, uh, for that sentiment, that compliment. But uh, yeah, I consider you to be a great friend as well, and never hesitate to reach out. You know, I'm always here. All right. Thanks, Frank. Enjoy the rest of your day. You bet. You too. I'm just so fascinated with Frank Bernard. I just think he's incredible. You know, they call him the connector. He's the consummate relationship builder. Just And just how kind of random, and I don't believe in randomness, but he gets his high school girlfriend pregnant. That basically changes the path of his life. And then he has this mentality and philosophy. He treats everybody the same because you can learn from everyone. And this guy missing teeth and with long hair that's helping him build a deck or fixing his deck introduces him to the Oracle, local Oracle GM in the early 80s when Frank just went out on his own 
And that changed the course of his life. He tripled his business and just really established himself as one of the primary recruiters in the uh, technology sales space. Joe, what were some of your takeaways with Frank? Yeah, the story about the guy building the deck was amazing. And it was also crazy. He was working in his father's restaurant, 19 years old, working in his father's restaurant. And it's almost, I know it wasn't quite this simple, but it's almost like somebody just walks in and says, hey, do you want to be a recruiter? Show, show up on Monday morning and come to work. And that defined the rest of his career. You don't see that happening very often, but that, that, and, and that was a career that I was around or been around for my entire life. I've been around recruiters working with Capgemini. And yeah, that's how you and I met. And that's how that's how we Cap got Gemini. together finally yeah. when I was working for Cap Gemini and you hired me from there. But I always saw all these recruiters and I thought that's never what I wanted to do because everything that they had to do it was built around relationships. And I was never really very good at relationships. But apparently Frank hit it right off the bat. I think the moral of that is that that does happen sometimes. Sometimes thing X, whatever it is, happens, that defines literally the rest of your life. The one thing that I want to make sure that our listeners understand is that you can't depend on that. You can't rely on that. That is not, sure. that should not be your plan. Well, I'm just sitting around waiting for a guy to walk into the kitchen and ask me, do I want a job? But when it does happen, grab onto it and, uh, and take it because that very may well define the rest of your life. Yeah, and I do think, and you're absolutely right. I mean, you can't, that's not a strategy. Like hope is not a strategy. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, his philosophies is treating all people the same, doing the right thing. It kind of attracted people that could help him in his universe. He was certainly so, prepared for it, whether he yes. realized it or not. Uh, he was prepared for that kind of life and it, it served him perfectly. God bless him. More power to him. That's great. Yeah. What leadership advice would you want to impart on our on our listeners, Joe, today? Well, today we're going back to that great philosopher, Dwight Schrute, who one time said, PowerPoint presentations are the peacocks of the business world. All show, but no meat. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Corporate Couch. If you enjoy the podcast, I would love for you to take two minutes out of your day to rate us five stars and write a review. Please join me next week to learn from another great leader sharing their professional journey and insights.